Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here. It's so cold. I didn't actually know that people could go outside in <laughs> this sort of weather and survive, but you are brave and you are hardy, and it's great to see your faces. I've been having a fantastic time here. And I thought, uh, you know, doubt is kind of a risky topic. I, I approached it with some trepidation, but I just kept thinking about the fact that, that God knows what's in our hearts before we do, and he is certainly big enough to handle our doubts. And so I thought maybe we could start our talk uh, tonight by just affirming how big God is and how capable he is of handling any questions or doubts that we might uh, throw at him. And I was thinking about uh, Psalm 37.5, you know, where it says, commit your way to the Lord and trust him and he will do this. And my understanding is that the most literal way you can translate that Hebrew for commit your way is literally roll your way onto Yahweh. And I love thinking about sort of the burdens that I'm carrying around, the things I'm not sure I can contend with uh, as just like a backpack full of rocks. And I have this invitation to literally take those things and roll them onto Yahweh, even my doubts. And so we are going to um, affirm that together, that we have an invitation to do that. And we're going to do that by singing the blues a little bit. Now, the blues are normally... Uh, quite sad. I saw, I saw a really legit blues singer the other day, and he was introducing a song, and he said, you know, when it comes to the blues, we ain't happy till nobody's happy. All right, so we are talking about doubt, and as Joan said, um, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Just like, you know, they say love and hate aren't opposites, right? It's more like love and indifference are opposites, and I want to say to you that the opposite of faith is probably something like non-reflective kind of smug, overconfident indifference, something like that. Doubt, as we talked about this morning, is just what bubbles up when there's a gap between what we were expecting and what we're actually encountering, or between what we uh, are capable of understanding and the vastness of what is actually there to be understood. And unless you've been given a very specific spiritual gift of faith, like the kind described in 1 Corinthians 12, a, a leave no room for doubt faith, you may find yourself uh, contending with seasons of questions, with wrestling, um, with times when it's difficult to perceive God's presence. Um, but that doubt can be something that is the ants in the pants of your faith, something that puts, pushes it forward. Uh, as long as we don't resort to the unhelpful uh, responses that if you were with us this morning, we talked about making God smaller or making ourselves bigger or just going on autopilot and going through the motions or insulating, refusing to engage with culture or simply um, walking away. We want instead to have um, healthy, life-giving approaches to doubt, and that's what we're exploring in these topics. This morning, we talked about expecting some turbulence, knowing that in most cases, some of us are going to Many of us are going to um, have seasons where we encounter uh, rough weather, but it doesn't mean we're going to crash. It's just part of the journey. And tonight, as Joan said, we're going to talk about keeping up the conversation. Even when you feel like you're not getting through, even you, when you feel like you're hollering into the void, um, keep talking to God, stay engaged, keep going. And I'm going to try to unpack for you some ways to do that and some reasons to do that. And the first one is that if you find yourself in the middle of a lake somewhere and you're not sure if you're going to get to the other side, you probably shouldn't stop swimming while you assess your chances. You should probably keep going. When I was about 12, 
my friend Darla and I, we had these big uh, inner tubes down at Lake Sassamat in Port Moody, BC. And you could kick your way on these inner tubes from one side of the lake to the other where there was kind of an island way out on the other side of the lake. So we did that on a nice summer day, kicked our way across, got off on the island, went exploring the island. And when we came back to the shore to kick our way back, someone had taken our inner tubes and vanished. We were stuck on this island. And it was, we could see our families on the far side of the lake, but they couldn't see us. And we were jumping up and down and trying to see if we could start something on fire or somehow capture their attention, but we couldn't. And we became pretty convinced that we were going to die tragic 12-year-old deaths on this on this island, and we finally decided, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna grab, there were some rotten logs kind of floating right at the edge of the shore, and we thought, okay, we'll use these for buoyancy, because we knew we weren't strong enough swimmers to swim all the way back without something to float on. So we grabbed these rotten logs, and we started kicking our way back, and the, but the logs were crumbly and soaked through, kind of like an Ontario car in the winter with the salt and... <laughs> And uh, they were breaking to bits as we were going. And there really was a point where we were saying to each other, Do we, should we just give in? Like, is it game over? Well, no, let's keep kicking, let's keep going. And of course, we, I'm happy to report, the logs make, got us all the way to the other side. We never did feel our parents were properly horrified at the fact that we almost died, but we've been in therapy, it's all good. Um, but my, my point is, is that, that you have, I'm guessing, certain ways of swimming with God. You have um, spiritual disciplines, you have prayer, you have th things you know you can read, songs you know you can look, listen to, art you know you can look at, things you know help to connect you um, with God. And in those times where nothing seems to be working, those are the times we most want to give up our practices, most want to give up our ways of engaging with God. And they're the times you absolutely must not. You must keep swimming. You must trust that even though it doesn't feel like anything's happening, something is, and uh, keep going till you get to the shore. It's weird. There's this weird tension in the spiritual life between surrender is very much required of us, but also tenacity. Surrender, because we recognize we can't do anything in our own strength, but tenacity and holding ourselves before God, open, ready to receive what he has for us. And to me, sort of the patron saint of this, the patron patriarch of this, is Jacob. Do you know the story of Jacob? In Genesis 32, this is maybe my all-time favorite story in the Bible. I feel like I know Jacob. Now, we first meet him in uh, Genesis 25, when he and his twin brother Esau, right, are born to their parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And you know, Jacob and Isaac are both in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. They're, they're supposed to be great examples for us. And when I read their story, the first way that it really helps me is I read how incredibly dysfunctional they are and the fact that God used them anyways to the point where they became Hall of Fame believers. And it's so reassuring to me. Like, you cannot be too messed up. You cannot be from too messed up of a family uh, for God to work with your, with your life. Are any of you young enough um, or old enough to remember the Bernstein Bears? And okay, we have some fans. Okay, so when my kids were little, they used to watch the Bernstein Bears cartoon. Do some of you remember the actual animated cartoon, not the books, but the cartoon? Okay, there's this fabulous theme song for that cartoon, sung by the country singer Leanne Womack. 
And it goes, they're kind of furry around the torso. They're just like people, only more so. Right? About the bears. But that song always goes through my head when I read about the patriarchs, because they're just like people. They're just as messed up as we are, only more so. I love that. You look at their family, and it, that you can see the dysfunction right away. So you've got these twin boys. You've got Jacob and Isaac. And in verse 28, it says, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Family favoritism right out in the open there. We, I think we can assume that Esau was kind of burly, good at hunting, kind of a man's man. His dad loved him because he got hunted good meat. And uh, Jacob was probably bookish, a little smaller, sensitive guy, kind of a... A mama's boy, and the favoritism was right there, out there in the open. I mean, Dr. Phil would have had a heyday with these people. And then there's their names, right? If you don't believe me that their family is dysfunctional, look at their, their names. Esau is, uh, means Harry, right? Now, Harry is a perfectly fine name. It's, in fact, a royal name, unless you happen to have been born freakishly hairy, which was what the case for Esau, right? If you're born freakishly hairy, maybe your parents shouldn't call you hairy. I'm just saying. And, and Jacob, Jacob is born, it's a really big deal who gets born first, right? In terms of the family blessing. And Jacob is born trying to grab Esau's ankle and pull him back. So they name him Jacob, beautiful name in English. I love the name Jacob. But in, in the original language, it means heel grasper or supplanter. And eventually it comes to meet, mean deceiver. So these people have named their children Harry, and he's freakishly hairy, and Deceiver, and he's kind of a deceiver. Now, years ago, my mom was nursing in a small town, and a family there had twin boys, and they named them Pete and Repeat. I'm not kidding. Legally, that was their names. And child services took him to court and said, no, you, you're not allowed to call your kids Pete and Repeat. And they legally changed the names, but still called them Pete and Repeat. But I'm here to tell you, I think... Uh, Harry and Deceiver is just as bad as Pete and Repeat. This is, not, this is not a healthy family. Of course, as the story unfolds, Jacob the Deceiver more than lives up to his name. And, uh, and there's this huge struggle over the blessing. The firstborn son is supposed to get the blessing. Now, we've kind of cheapened the idea of the word blessing. You know, we say it if somebody sneezes, bless you. I learned in, when I spent some time in Nashville in the South that, oh, bless her heart, means something roughly equivalent to, oh, dear, look at her outfit, right? <laughs> but, but in Jacob's time, blessing is a serious business. It, it means love and acceptance and belonging, and the conveyor, when the, when the father blesses the son, he passes something of his own self onto the son. It means vocation. It means carrying on the family's name. It means all kinds of really important things. And both boys want the blessing. And I'm sure most of you know the story. Jacob famously tricks his dad out of the blessing. Esau is furious. Jacob, with the help of his mom, skips town to avoid being killed by his brother and goes to live with his uncle Laban. And it's interesting because even though Jacob has managed to swindle the blessing, he's never really gotten the blessing from his dad. It, was, it wasn't real. It was cheated. And he exhibits, you know, they say, psychologists say that, that kids who grow up without feeling, without feeling blessed and accepted, without having the blessing of their parents, feeling loved and accepted, they very often become overachievers. They spend the rest of their life trying to earn that blessing that they never got. 
And Jacob is exhibit A, right? He goes, he ends up becoming very, very successful as a livestock breeder. He makes a ton of money. He ends up with four wives. It's all, you know, anybody who says the Bible is boring has not actually read it. It's better than any soap opera. I mean, it's quite, there's quite a lot of stuff goes on in Jacob's life. But he ends up with four wives, a ton of kids, tons of servants, uh, lots of wealth. He does really, really well. But after about 20 years, he wants to go home. He misses his mom. He wonders how things are. He wonders if maybe Esau might have forgiven him by now, and he decides it's time to go home and find out. So he packs up all the wives and the kids and the servants and a bunch of camels, and he starts making his way towards home. But the closer that he gets to home, the more he starts remembering how much bigger Esau is than he is. (laughs) Esau's a big guy, and he was really mad when Jacob left. So as time cooled things off for Esau or made him even more angry. So he sends a little convoy ahead to kind of give word, hey, Esau, I'm coming, how are things? And he gets a report back that, oh yeah, Esau's coming to meet him and he's bringing 400 of his biggest, toughest friends. And Jacob starts to sweat bullets. And finally, it's, it's the night before they're gonna meet up and Jacob sets up camp on the Jabbok River. This is a, a modern day picture of that place. He sets up camp there, and first thing he does after he starts to set up, and he thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to split my camp in half, send one half of the camp somewhere else. That way, if we get ambushed, only half of us will get wiped out, and the other half will be okay. So he does that. Then he tries to rest, and he thinks, no, i got to send the wives and the kids away. I don't want them to get hurt. So he sends them away, and finally, it's just him alone on the Jabbok River. And he starts to pray what I think is probably the first real prayer of his life, thinking about Esau coming. I I actually, we talked about turbulence this morning. I think of this prayer that Esau prays as an airplane turbulence prayer. You know, have you ever been on a plane that is bouncing up and down and it is so good for your prayer life? It's just like, Lord, if there's anything not right between us, I confess it now. And well, Jacob starts having one of those airplane about to go down kind of prayers uh, with the Lord. And he tries to rest, and when you know it, sure enough, in the middle of the night, Esau jumps him. That guy jumps him in the dark. You can't see him. They start to grapple. They start to wrestle. There's just, it must have been so surreal. It's pitch black, just the sound of grunts and mud slugging around. And after a while, he starts to realize, wait a second, this isn't, this isn't Esau. You know, he's not hairy enough, <laughs> for one thing. Um, this isn't Esau. And it's a really mysterious story, right? At first, the narrator is referring to a stranger that Jacob's wrestling with, and then he calls him an angel of the Lord. And by the end of the story, Jacob somehow knows that in some mysterious way, he's wrestling with with Elohim, with Yahweh, with God himself. Somehow he knows this. They fight all night long. Jacob has the strength to fight God all night long. And finally, this stranger, this angel of the Lord, God, touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. And all of a sudden, Jacob, now he's hanging on, not to fight anymore, but because he can't hold himself up. So he's just hanging on for dear life. And the stranger says, it's daybreak, let me go. And Jacob, now he realizes he has the God of the universe in his arms, and he's gonna make a request. And he could ask God for anything, and he holds on for dear life, and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This one thing that Jacob's been looking for his whole life, the blessing, acceptance, love, belonging, completeness, 
that's the thing he knows to ask God for after this weird fight all night long. This story fascinates me as it relates to doubt and questions and seasons of wrestling. It fascinates me, first of all, the whole hip business. Uh, Jacob's hip getting dislocated. Now, my husband is a coach. He used to coach wrestling. He doesn't coach wrestling anymore. And I'm really glad, because those unitard things that they wear, those are wrong. <laughs> I'm just taking a stand. <laughs> but, but my husband says that any good wrestler knows that your hips are your pivot point of strength. Right? If you're in a wrestling match, it all comes down to your hips. And I think it's fascinating that this thing that Jacob has been looking for his whole life, he's not in a state where he can receive it until he's overcome right at his pivot point of strength. And I don't know what your go-to places are, your pivot points of strength, the places you go to to feel in charge and secure and in control. They're probably God-given gifts. It might be your athleticism or your gift speaking for people or your musicality or how good you are at school or your organizational skills or the fact that you can make people laugh. Something good, but it can become your pivot point of strength. It might even be your faith, how good you are at believing, how impervious you are to doubt. And it's strange, but sometimes we have to be dislocated from those go-to places, those pivot points of strength, in order to be relocated into God's strength, his provision for us. Now, I'm not saying that every time a challenge comes along that throws you out of your own resources, that that's God specifically touching your hip. I mean, I, I just think we're on a broken planet, and it's mysterious. Sometimes it, it may be God orchestrating things, but also life will just kind of take care of that for you. Life will come along and dislocate you from your own strength. But when that happens, as painful as it is, and I find when it's doubt that it's particularly painful because you think, am I betraying you, God? What is going on here? It's confusing. But whatever it is, if it's doubt or it's cancer or it's relationship trouble or job trouble, whatever it is, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry if it hurts and I don't want to be glib, but if it gets you to the end of your rope and out past your strength and your resources and in, into his, then like Jesus said, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit because yours will be the kingdom of heaven. If you get if you realize you got nothing, that's when you start to get into his strength and his precision. The second thing that, that fascinates me about this story is um, when Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the stranger, the angel, God, blesses him. And he gives him a new name. He says, you're not going to be Jacob the deceiver anymore. Now you're going to be, what does he name him? Israel. And do you know what Israel literally means? Does anyone know? It's probably some of you do, but you're being quiet. Israel literally means God wrestler. Now, I think that is fascinating, that God would name uh, Jacob and then his people, his church, the people that he's going to do salvation history with, that he would name them God wrestlers. I think that's fascinating because I grew up knowing I was supposed to be a God lover and a God obeyer, a God teller about her. Um, I knew I was supposed to be all those things, but I did not know that I could be, and in fact, God expected me to be a God wrestler. I didn't know that God understood that for a finite creature to have a relationship with an infinite God, sometimes it would feel like a walk in the garden, but sometimes it would feel like 10 rounds in the ring, and he wants me to fight 
to hold on tight, to keep swimming in the middle of the lake, and to hold on and say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. If that is the only prayer I can pray, he wants me to keep praying it. I think that's fascinating. You and I are both called to be God wrestlers. So that means we need to discuss everything, including and especially our doubts with God. This is the exact opposite of the unhealthful unhealthful and unhelpful go on autopilot response, right? Doubt comes and we have this instinct that we just want to shut it down, stop the conversation, but instead we need to increase the conversation. Let's say that I have an issue with somebody named um, Rose. She's done something to hurt me or let me down. And so I I debrief what happened with Rose um, with some of our mutual friends. I I go to some people that know both Rose and me to get some insight. I tell them what happened. I I get their read on the situation. And I start running conversations with Rose through my head. And in, in some of my imagined conversations, it goes really well. She apologizes. And other ones, she slams the door in my face. I don't like imagining it that way. I read some books on conflict resolution, and I hope they'll help illuminate the issues I've had with Rose. I go to some seminars, but what's the one thing I haven't done? I haven't talked to Rose, right? I talked to our mutual friends, I go to some seminars, I read some books, but I haven't gone and talked to Rose, and until I do, there's probably not going to be a lot of progress made. Well, I think we do the same thing when we have mystery and struggle and doubt with God. We talk to each other about, I'm not, it's not happening. We go to seminars, we read books, but we just need to talk to him. We need to keep at it, even if we're telling him about our frustrations and our doubts. And just in case you ever feel like it's out of line to come to God with your complaints and your doubts, if you feel like it's out of line to holler at God and say, what's going on and where are you and why can't I sense you? Feel free to read any of these psalms. This is a, a partial list of lament psalms. As you can see, it's pretty lengthy and it's only a partial list of places you can start to give voice to those questions and those longings and those frustrations. It is a huge act of faith to complain to God because it presumes that there is a God who cares. So go ahead, complain. I, I think the biblical writers who gave us all of these lament psalms understood that everything that's inside of us either has to get prayed out or left to fester. So no matter what you do, keep up the conversation. Thirdly, I just want to warn you that in my experience, if you don't keep up the conversation, then distance and distortions will grow in the absence of conversation. One of the chief strategies of the enemy of faith is to distort God's character, to confuse us about who God is. You see that right in the beginning, right? In Genesis 3, Eve's trying to decide what to do with the command God gave her, and the enemy comes along and says, you can't trust God. Nothing he's saying is true. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And uh, when Adam and Eve fall for the first lie, The next time God comes looking for them in the cool of the evening, something they'd always look forward to, they run and hide. Well, whose character has changed in the story? Has God's character changed? No, but sin and brokenness distorts things, and suddenly God is not someone that they want to be with. What this makes me think of is a story that's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll tell it to you, and hopefully you'll see what I mean. I travel a lot with a musician named Spencer Capier. He plays a bunch of different instruments and we've been working together, oh, I think it's 20 or 
23 years or something. He always says it's more like 30 years with the wind chill factor. But um, we're really good friends. We're pretty much like brother and sister uh, at this point. And a few years ago, I needed to get a new Mac laptop for this kind of thing. And I was trying to be a good steward of ministry money and find a, a good deal on a Mac somewhere. And if you're a Mac person, you know Mac stuff never goes on sale. But this was at the, kind of the height of eBay. And I went looking on eBay, and wouldn't you know, I found this incredible deal on a Mac laptop on eBay. And I knew it was strange to find such a good deal, but the, the uh, seller had uh, like 3,000 transactions and a 99.9% .9 positive approval rating. I thought, this is amazing. So Spencer, uh, besides being my buddy, he's also my gear guy. He's into all things technological. So I called him and I said, I found, I found this great deal on a laptop. I told him about it. And he said, I, I don't know, Carolyn. You know what they say, if something's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And I was so irritated. I was like, look, this isn't my first rodeo, okay? I know how these things work. The guy's got a solid approval rating. He's been around forever. Fine, it's gonna be fine. So. I uh, very foolishly, I don't know what I was thinking, but I foolishly wired this guy some money and it turned out it was a total fraud. He, it was somebody who had hacked the seller's identity and re-diverted the funds and he got a bunch of my money. And I felt terrible. Fortunately, my husband had kind of uh, been in with me on the process all the way along, so things were okay with him. But boy, I felt like an idiot. I felt sick about the wasted money. and. I really didn't want to tell Spencer, right? So we didn't have any gigs together for a while, and um, a couple times he called, and I would see his number on my call display, and I would think, you know, I'm a little bit too busy um, to answer his call right now, and he sent me a few emails, and I just was a little too busy to respond. And a strange thing happened. The more time went by, the bigger jerk Spencer became, right? The longer it was till I saw him, the more I realized, I don't know why I ever was friends with that guy. He has never had my back. He's such a jerk. He's always looking for me to, to fail, and he's, he's mockery is his mother tongue, and he's, why was I ever friends with this guy? And the more time that went off, the bigger jerk he was. And finally, uh, the time came where we, we had a gig and I, it, we were flying somewhere together and, and I knew the jig was up and I met him at the airport. He didn't say anything about the computer. I didn't say anything, but I was just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. And we got on the plane and about 20 minutes into the flight, he said, hey, whatever happened with that laptop thing? And I finally had to confess to him what I was so embarrassed and ashamed of. And a funny thing happened, the moment that I confessed my embarrassing secret, he snapped back into Spencer, my friend, again. Now, he did mock me. That's part of our relationship. <laughs> but he mocked me in that brotherly way, and I remembered that he loved me and he had my back, and I realized that I had made a distortion of him. And the more I had withheld from conversation, the more I had withheld from connection, the more distorted he became to me because of my own brokenness and embarrassment. Now, he loves this story because he realizes that in this story, when it becomes a metaphor, he plays the part of God. And it goes straight to his head. If you knew him, you'd know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it's true. I think when that estrangement comes, when, and sometimes it's doubt that starts to introduce that gap, the longer that we let it go, the longer we go without conversation, the more distorted our understanding will, will come. 
So stay praying, stay in the word, keep looking at those pictures that we've been given in God's word of who God actually is, what his character is actually like. Don't let um, distortion and distance grow. And this, I think, is why uh, Jesus was so uh, into persistence in his teaching on prayer. It's interesting, we get a few chunks, especially in Luke, of Jesus teaching on prayer, and twice in the places where Jesus is, the disciples are asking Jesus how to pray, he gives persistence um, parables. The first one is in Luke 11. You know that one? There's a, there's a a neighbor, a guy living in the village. An unexpected guest comes in the middle of the night. The um, the neighbor realizes, oh, I don't have any food in the house with which to host this guy. So he goes to his neighbor's house bangs on the door and says, hey, do you have anything? I've got an unexpected uh, guest. And the neighbor next door says, go away. I'm, I, kids are already in bed. I'm in bed. Door's locked. You know, go to Savon. Go, go. Do you have Savon here? Go to Loblos. Am I speaking Ontario? Um, anyway, go to a supermarket um, and go away. And Jesus says, but the neighbor keeps knocking and keeps knocking and finally the bad neighbor who doesn't want to get up gets up and gives him some food. And of course, we read the story, and I tend to kind of sympathize with the neighbor in bed. I think, yeah, no one should be knocking at my door at midnight looking for a meal. But if we understand the context for this story, it's in a Middle Eastern village. Jesus is talking to a Middle Eastern audience where hospitality is everything. And where uh, it's not uncommon to have a guest show up in the middle of the night. Uh, because it's a desert climate. It's hard, it sounds pretty good right now with the temperatures outside, but it's so hot that you don't want to travel during the day, so you travel at night. So it's actually not that unusual for a guest to show up in the middle of the night. And if you couldn't feed that person, you would be betraying this value of hospitality, and the shame would be not only on you, but on the whole village. So of course you would go to your neighbor and say, hey, for the reputation of our village, I need to borrow some food, we need to feed this guy. And Jesus' audience totally gets this. And so to them, this is kind of a funny story about a real cad who won't get out of bed and help host a, a, a visitor to, to the village. So the, the, they would have identified much more with the neighbor who's trying to wake up the bad neighbor. And then there's this other parable in, in Luke 18 about the persistent wi widow who needs a, a, an injustice made right. And there's a totally capricious, evil judge, and she just keeps bugging and bugging and bugging the judge until he finally makes it right. Well, I read both of these parables, and, and honestly, they used to really bug me. Like, what are you saying here, Jesus, that we need to nag you? We need to nag God? And I, I finally realized, I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, in, in Luke 18, 1, it says, uh, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So Jesus is telling them a, a, a parable to help them understand that persistence in, in prayer is important. And then he says, uh, at, at the end of the, of the parable, and this is the passage I have up, I have the wrong reference there. Um, he says, in both of these parables, let me take a step back. In both of these parables, he's doing a classic rabbi thing of arguing from the light to the heavy. So he's saying, look, if the jerky neighbor and the evil judge will eventually do what's right, how much more, how unbelievably much more will your heavenly father, who I personally know to be very good, make sure that justice is done? But in the meantime, you've got to keep praying. And I think the reason why he had such an emphasis 
on persistence is not because we need to nag God into giving us what we want, but I think he understood that part of the human condition, part of the struggle of a finite creature being in relationship with an infinite God is that there would be times of mystery, times when we can't hear the other side of the conversation, times when we don't understand what's going on and he didn't want us to give up. I think that Jesus understood that nothing kills a relationship faster than the silent treatment. Do you have anyone that gives you the silent treatment? It will kill the relationship so quickly. And Jesus said, don't give God the silent treatment. Keep going. And this part at the end of Luke 18 that I have up here for you makes it kind of clear that he's really talking about faith. He says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Trust me, if these evil characters in my stories will bring about justice, God is already about justice right now. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see what they, that they get justice and quickly. And here's the clincher. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here Jesus is defining faith as persistence, as keeping on praying even when we don't feel like we're getting through trusting that something's going on that we don't sense yet and keeping up the conversation. I think Jesus understood something about what it is to have an earthly perspective and that we would have to learn that there's always more going on than meets the eye. I think it was John Wesley who said one of the greatest tricks of the devil is to make us think that we have to feel like something's happening for God to actually be at work. Sometimes those things don't correlate. Do you know what this is a picture of? Does anybody know? What's that? Yeah, yeah, it's a ring nebula, like a supernova. Uh, it's part of the constellation Lyra, or Lyra. If you look through strong binoculars, you can see it. It looks like a colorful smoke ring. Um, but what it actually is, is a supernova, an exploding star. And here's the thing, it expands by 70 million miles a day but you can't see any of that movement from here on Earth. In fact, if you compared this picture to a picture taken 15 years ago, they would look exactly alike. So a picture from 15 years ago and a picture today, they'd look exactly alike, but every day of the 15 years in between, there would be an expansion of 70 million miles a day. <laughs> Isn't that incredible, the difference in perspective? I think um, that prayer is like that. We can't see anything going on, but explosive and powerful action is happening. God is bringing about his kingdom. And we have to trust that even if we can't see it with the naked eye, things are happening. We gotta keep praying. So I wanna sing about that when, when I get to the chorus. I'll need you to come in, okay? So Jesus can advocate persistence. He can advocate watching and waiting and longing and praying because he knows that there are explosive things going on that we can't see with the naked eye. God is active. He is redeeming all things. His purposes will not be thwarted. We can trust that even in those times where it just feels like hollering into the void. The last sort of piece of this keeping up the conversation puzzle is trying to figure out not only how we can keep talking, keep coming to God with all our confusions and doubts and questions, but also how we can listen. Uh, I've been reading this book that I have found really helpful and I wanted to just share a little bit about it with you. Um, it's by a guy named uh, Ronald Rollheiser and it's called The Shattered 
lantern, the shattered lantern. And the title comes from a, a Nietzsche parable. Have any of you ever heard this parable that Nietzsche tells? He, he tells this story. It says, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I am looking for God. I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he caused considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another, or is he hiding? Is he scared of us? Did he immigrate? They shouted and laughed in this manner. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his look. Where has God gone, he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Now Nietzsche here, you know, he's, he, Nietzsche has lived on in infamy for a lot of things, one of which is for saying that God was dead, as he says in this parable. But how Rollheiser reads this parable from Nietzsche is he, he, he doesn't think that he actually means that God up in his heaven has, has died, but rather that things were starting to happen that Nietzsche could see actually rather prophetically in Western culture and the way that people thought about reality and the world that were stealing away from people their ability to perceive the transcendent, to perceive God alive and active, to see anything but just matter, just what was right in front of their faces. So Rollheiser has the theory that the only way we can start to push back from those things that would rob our ability to perceive God's presence and listen to him is to push back against some of these big moves that have happened in our culture in the last couple hundred years. And three of them are particularly um, problematic. The first one is narcissism. And narcissism, when we hear that word, oh, you're so narcissistic, it's easy to think of it as just being an egomaniac. But that's not exactly what it is. It's just being self-obsessed. It's just being huge to ourselves. And there have been shifts in philosophy that started with, I think, therefore I am, as the foundation for everything else we could possibly know, that have made us really big to ourselves. And so narcissism can be, I'm awesome, and I'm just going to think about me and my needs all the time. Or it can be, uh, I'm awful, and I'm just going to think about my awfulness all the time. Or it can just be a blindness to anything that isn't really of our, ourselves. And it's a huge problem to perceiving the other, to listening to God. Another thing is, is this strain of pragmatism, where the truth of an idea lies only in its practical efficacy. Right? That's allowed us to roll up our sleeves and get a lot of industrialization and technology and, and good things done. There's definitely a bright side to it. But the dark side to it is it pushes us away from things that aren't obviously useful, like being quiet and listening, being patient, trying to hear the other. And the third thing he identifies is this unbridled restlessness and distractibility. Has anybody experienced that at all in their lives? Unbridled restlessness <laughs> and distractibility. I actually had to buy an app, a $5 app called Antisocial. Have you heard of this app? It is an app that will shut down anything on your computer that is a social networking kind of thing for the time that you designate. And the only way you can, uh, so if you say, for an hour, I'm going to be antisocial, it will shut down Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff um, for an hour. And the only way you can get it back is to reboot your computer. And I had to do this so I could actually get work done and not constantly be surfing social media. I told my husband about it. I was so excited. I've got this antisocial app. And he was like, you know that you don't have to pay $5 for 
self-discipline, right? So, oh yes, I do. Uh, we live in a highly distracted world and we also have this restlessness. We've been buying this dream for a few hundred years now that we should be able to experience everything the finest of everything, every part of the world, the best food, and lots of great things have come out of that, but it set us up in this condition where to have anything less than everything feels a like a little bit of a tragedy. And uh, Rollheiser and some other people are saying, look, these kinds of things are these huge currents in the rivers in which we are wading, and they are pulling us away and away and away from those still, quiet, contemplative centers where we can stop and listen for God. So what happens when we live in a world dominated with narcissism and pragmatism and restlessness? We lose any sense of mystery. We only see one level of explanation for anything, which is amazing when our physicists tell us that we actually can only see 4% of the known universe, that the rest is dark matter, and yet we still think that there's only one explanation for everything. We've lost our sense of history. Things just happen when they happen. They don't have context. They're not part of a larger story. Naturally, this steals at our sense of wonder, our sense of the sacred, and our sense of holiness. And the only way to push back is to try to get quiet in whatever way works for you. For my husband, he's got to jump on a mountain bike and hit a mountain somewhere. For me, I'm really good with the couch. Thank you very much. But whatever way that we can push back against some of these strains and get quiet and listen again. So we can get back to, some of you know this poem, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She used to say that earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blueberries, blackberries. Um, now the world seems flat and we have, to, we have to recapture all the reality that's there. So a little quick 10 second primer on living from a contemplative center as we try to push against things like narcissism and pragmatism and unbridled restlessness and distractibility. Some of the things that we can try are receptivity and especially gratitude. Try starting every day with five things that you're grateful for, or 10 or 15 or 20, and see that, what that does to your day. Uh, a sense of divine providence. Try to recapture a sense of listening to your life and seeing God's hand moving and redeeming. It is amazing to me the difference between a day that I pray through with God at the beginning of the day and a day where I hit the snooze button an extra time and then just hit the ground running. The day that I've prayed through, oddly enough, God just seems to show up. I start to see the potential and the promise lurking in, in, in every opportunity. And the day where I just hit the ground running, it's just a day to get through. And you have to start listening to our lives again. Self-abandonment and obedience, this idea of letting go of our own agenda, letting go of the things that we so fiercely hold on to, our reputation, our income, whatever it is, whatever it is we're holding tightly on, surrendering that so God could give it back to us in the, in the form that he wants to give it to us. Um, contemplative prayer, which is a little bit different than uh, meditative prayer. And this is one of my favorite things. If you ever check out the Rollheiser book, this is one of my favorite things. He explains the difference between meditation and contemplation, both of which are really important. But he says meditative prayer, where we use words and maybe we pick a passage and we study it and we break it down or we have a, some set prayers that we're praying or we're just verbalizing our own thoughts. He said, with both, of the, both meditative prayer and contemplative prayer, we're trying to wake back up 
to the God in which we live and move and have our being. And he says, we're, in this way, we're kind of like um, a fish that goes to his mother and says, Mom, I want to know about this water I keep hearing so much about. Well, the fish has always lived in water, so much like us, we live in this God in whom we live and move and have our being. The fish can't detect the water. So meditative prayer would be like this. And this is a parable, so we can make whatever we want to happen, happen. The mom takes the fish down to the bottom of the ocean, sets up a slide projector, has a bunch of pictures of water, land, contrast, land and water, says, this is water, this is land, you're in water, shows them the pictures, and slowly the fish goes, ah, that's what water is. Okay, I'm learning what water is. And then the mom says, okay, now what I need you to do is just sit and let the water flow through you and learn what water is directly, direct contact. And that's kind of like the difference between meditation and contemplation. Both are really important. We need to learn about God, verbalize our thoughts about God, but we also need to try to find a way, whatever way works for you and your wiring and your temperament, to just sit and let them flow through you and attend to what it's like uh, to be his child. A couple more things that characterize this contemplative center. One is concern for and involvement with the poor. Uh, God seems to have this preferential heart for the disenfranchised, for the poor. So sometimes if we're looking for him, that's where we can find him. And we might also find that uh, one thing that characterizes living from a contemplative center is a restoration of wonder, this kind of return to a new, uh, not childish faith, but childlike faith that has made its way back um, to trust and wonder in who God is. At the beginning, I said that there's this weird mix of surrender and tenacity. Tenacity of saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And surrender of saying, you're the only one who can bless me. Take me out at the hip if you have to, because you're the only one who can do it. And in this invitation to push back against some of the forces that are working against us and our ability to perceive and hear from God, is this invitation to both tenacity and to surrender, to get hanging in tough, keeping up the conversation, but also letting go of our agenda to make it work on our own terms, make faith feel like we think it should feel like. And so I think of that verse, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Let me grab my guitar. When they first translated that verse uh, into the Latin Vulgate, they took that, that imperative, that command, be still, and they used the verb vacari, vacate, vacate, and know that I am God. And sometimes when I am just wearing myself out, wrestling, struggling, trying to make myself believe the way that I should believe, I hear this invitation from God saying, hey, Carolyn, how, how about if you take a vacation from thinking that you have to be God? that you have to manage your own faith level and you have to manage people and situations and really the universe. You ever get that feeling like the world is on your shoulders? I come to this verse and I feel like God is saying, how about if you take a vacation from being God and remember that I'm God? Just be still, vacate, and remember that I'm God. All right, so here's the invitation. Keep up the conversation. Keep swimming, even if you're in the middle of the ocean and you feel like you might be drowning. Bring everything, including and especially your doubts, to, to God. Do not kill that relationship with the silent treatment. Persist. 
trust that there is more going on than meets the eye. And find a way to listen. Step by step, uh, bit by bit, push back against those forces that make us just want to deal on the surface with things, that make us distracted, that make ourselves huge to ourselves, and try to, try to listen to the God who speaks, the God we can trust, the God who's faithful. Let's pray. Father, thanks for meeting us in this room, for being here before we got here. Thanks for understanding uh, how hard it is sometimes for us as finite creatures to perceive you, to hear you, even when you are active, even when your love never fails. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you uh, even for our belief when we're drowning in unbelief. Help us to have the courage to say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And help us to surrender so that you can bless us. I pray that for each person in this room. I pray that if there's a person in this room whose friend is really grappling and wrestling with doubt, that you'll give wisdom and discernment, the right words, the right touch at the right time. Help us to believe for each other in your community, in your church, in your body, in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.